The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today's guests are Sean Huang and Vincent Lam. Sean and Vincent are co-founders of Matador.com. Matador.com is an intuitive map-based platform for easy project management and collaboration. The technology they've created helps companies eliminate collaboration and visibility challenges by consolidating all critical project information on one intuitive map-based dashboard with real-time updates that can be shared between multiple parties. Clients who utilize the Matador platform can share project data and standardized workflows, facilitating better decision-making and ensuring that all projects result in a better environmental footprint and cleaner resource extraction. So without further delay, here's my interview with Sean Huang and Vincent Lam. Vincent, Sean, welcome to the podcast, guys. How are y'all doing today? Good, great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for okay. Yeah, no worries. So just to get a sense of geography, where are you guys located today? We're in Vancouver where it's absurdly hot these couple of days. So <laughs> in our yeah. standard, I guess. <laughs> yeah, in our standard. yeah, we can't complain. I mean, there's no complaining, right? <laughs> yeah, we're just talking it up. It's about 104 Fahrenheit. There's this old joke in Texas that says we've got, we've got two temperatures, hot and hotter, which is not 100% true because we just had like a polar vortex this last winter. So, I mean, it does get cold here. I've seen it with my own two eyes, but it doesn't compare to the cold that I have felt in Canada. Like last time I visited, I want to say Calgary, I think it was like negative two, negative three, something like that. It was pretty cold. So it never gets quite that cold. But it does get cold here in Texas. I can attest to that for sure. So just like it gets cold here, I guess it gets <laughs> hot in Canada too. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. yeah. We just have time. to uh, get used yeah. to it, yeah. Yeah, we're, 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 time we're in. So. so give me a sense of how long you guys have been working together. What's the history between the two of you? Yeah, Sean and I meet back, I think, 10 years ago, Sean. Yeah, yeah. We're, it's a kind of a funny incident. We were playing in a badminton tournament, both of us. And then I think I can't remember whether we match against each other or, or not, but we got to, you know, hit up and, and start talking and realize we, we were both more like in tune into the tech space, but we didn't go too far into our work, just hang out as a badminton buddy afterwards. No, I think, uh, I think back then I was still a student. I was still an undergrad. Yeah. That was oh, like the, the first time we met. Yeah. That was the first <laughs> time. Yeah. No, we met on two occasions. So Vincent will talk more on the second occasion, but. Yeah, first time he was still, he was at Google. Were you at Google that time or like? I or, think around that time, yeah. Yeah, and years, I was, so. yeah, I was still in an undergrad at UBC. I had a, I took a chemistry degree and, you know, that turned out to be not that useful, like looking <laughs> back, but hey, molecules were always fun to draw in lectures. But yeah, Vince, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, go go ahead. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I can attest to that. My uh, university degree, I have an electrical engineering degree. So, well, I guess half of my degree was kind of related to software, but the other half is hardware related stuff, which I have no clue nowadays. Like, yeah, none of those that I learned from university regarding hardware is, is being applied in my career, 20 years of career. But anyway, not to discourage anyone from from not doing university. I think it's just a personal choice of moving into a different field. And then, yeah, so we met up about 10 years ago when we were playing badminton, and then we bumped into each other again about three years ago. I think that's when, Sean, you're coming back from Shanghai from another venture of yours. We sat down in a coffee shop and start you know, chatting, catching up, and figure out, hey, we both were looking for something exciting to do. I was in a transition mode from my last venture as well. So the timing hasn't been more perfect at that time when we sit down in a coffee yep. shop, start talking about VR, you know, AR stuff, which Sean is working on and I'm heavily interested in. And my background is more on the geospatial. For those who don't, who don't know, it's like mapping stuff, locations-based stuff. And so we kind of draw on the whiteboard even, like, like draw on a napkin basically saying, hey, can we actually merge you know, VR, AR? with maps, like with geospatial stuff. That's how we kind of kicked off our first venture, which is a geospatial AR platform, AR as in augmented reality platforms. That's really interesting. And, and it's, you know, I'm thinking about a little bit about when you mentioned AI and Sean, I guess you were coming back from China and I watched something recently. I watched it recently, but it came out maybe a few years back about AI and how China is using AI and how they're, you know, really, I mean, obviously they're, they're sort of on this leading edge of AI over in China and the way that they're utilizing it. How do you see AI integrated into some of the newer technologies? Like what are some of the technologies you believe are really going to benefit greatly from AI? And either one of you can take this question. I, I don't mind. Yeah, I think I can stat- take a stab at it first. So, you know, in AI was really, really big in Shanghai, especially in China as well. I think especially, you know, AI is basically coming off of big data, right? You can't really have any AI or, you know, machine learning unless you have, you know, a large enough pool or sample set of data to that you can actually augment, aggregate, and then, you know, build essentially, you know, AI around it. So, in China, most prevalent what we saw and, you know, around the world is, you know, computer visioning. So be able to recognize certain things just through your camera lens, photos, you know, be able to run diagnostic. I think that was a big one. And, you know, China had a scenario where I think one of the AI companies was able to really just through the way someone walks down the street, just through, you know, the way their face, like the side of their face look, they can actually identify that person's like, you know, ID, right? Because, with China, I think it's very different than North America, where there, there's no such thing as privacy, right? So first of all, government like knows everything about you. Technically, they do here, but it's on a different level, right? Like there, you're explicitly watched, right? Like you go down any sort of intersection, you see four, five, maybe six cameras like at every intersection, and you're always being watched. So and those cameras can actually recognize you. And it's kind of scary how in China, they're starting to have the social credit rating where they can actually recognize you through a camera and they can actually assign you. I'm not sure if you saw any Black Mirror episodes on Netflix, but essentially it's, you know, you get ranked based on the yeah. type of, you know, like like stuff you do, right? If you go to a grocery store, you buy like diapers, you buy like, you know, normal groceries, then your credit rating goes up. 
because you're you're having kids, you're doing something productive, right? If you go into the same store, you buy alcohol, like alcohol, cigarettes, or you know, use other kind of stuff. That's you know, buy other inappropriate stuff. Then your credit rating goes down. And if your credit rating drops to a certain point, you can't book flights, you can't book any public transportation. Like you're literally blocked. So they're having this hierarchy where they're actually ranking people and then having different access for people based on different tiers, which is kind of scary. They don't do it to foreigners. So obviously for me, it's a bit different because I'm Taiwanese. I'm not technically Chinese. And it's very funny when I was there with my first venture. So my first venture, we were more on the virtual reality side, right? So going in, I saw like, you know, 200, 300 companies doing the same thing as us, but people there have a different mentality, right? If you look at People at Alibaba, they have this mentality where they call 996. That's their work schedule, right? They call it 996. Basically, you work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. And I think that's really how China was really able to expedite their growth within the past like couple of years, right? Like before China, even in the early 2000s, they were still very behind. Like technologically wise, it was very behind, right? Like uncomparable to like the Western, you know, civilization. But yeah, I think recently they just been like on steroids, just like, you know, kept, you know, long work hours and labor there is a lot cheaper too, right? So I think AI there is used for a different purpose than here. I think it's more for, you know, a lot of it has government ties to it for sure compared to in North America. Sort of just keeping people, I guess the population sort of not necessarily under control, but sort of keeping everybody in check. Like, hey, we know what's going on. You know, don't yeah. you know, don't don't get sideways over here. It's not going to go down right for you. Because I've seen even you know where people walking who jaywalk, they take their picture and then they like publicly post the picture up at the intersection, showing everybody like these people are jaywalking, and you can even be fined, you know, instantly or whatever. And 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 they talked about that social credit score, which is sort of reminds me of like the the score you get like as an Uber rider, like even Uber has something similar to that, like between drivers and riders, right? Like drivers get a score, riders get a score. And so if you get such a low score, like stop you from riding or driving, which is kind of interesting. Like it's an interesting social experiment to see like what people are willing to put up with and what they're not and how they rank each other. I mean, everything gets ranked now, right? We have here in the States, I'm sure you guys have it there. Like we have Yelp, right? And Yelp ranks all the restaurants in different Restaurants get bad reviews, yep. they don't go. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And then, you know, obviously adding in new technologies like AI and seeing what that has to do with things. I mean, I think people sort of get this under like this thought about AI, like, oh my God, AI is going to come take all jobs. It's going to, you know, turn against us. It's very far away from anything of that nature. It's still very much like, is this yes, is this no, right? If, if then statements machine learning, but you're right. We need a lot of data, right? You need so much data to feed the machine before it can really start making, you know, accurate decisions or accurate choices, right? So I'm really interested to see how that goes and how that starts to really shape up here in the States and in Canada and North America all together. So tell us a little bit about GIS. What is it? How does it work? It's actually a good segue into another application of the AI. Actually, we did a location crossing the AI use case and application last year, which is targeted for COVID prediction modeling, basically. As you know, when we're talking about the COVID risks, it's very locational driven. So depending on where you are at, how crowded the space is, you know, what are the previous cases around your area, it all contributes to the risks or how risky 
of the COVID situation on that area. So that brings to the aspect of geospatial or, or GIS location information. So knowing where things are at is basically the question that GIS answers. So for our use case, we were partnering with Unity and MMP, two tech companies, to create a prediction modeling using the publicly available health data and also whatever governments is sharing with us. Like Sean said, having that big data in the back end, creating the model to predict like a weather forecast type interface where you can pick, okay, in the tomorrow or in the next two days, what will be the risks if I go to this area? And the app is, was built for business operators so they can then plan for the staffing criteria according to the risks safety level. So let's say if they pick, you know, this location of Starbucks, for example, how many people can I staff today given the risks of the past few days? That application is going to tell you, hey, if you staff more than five people, you're going to be exceeding your, your risk level. So as a business owner, it becomes a lot easier for them to plan it out and yet uh, comply with the safety measures. So the way that we did it was we had to first know the location of the coffee shop, for example, the location of the people, where they're coming from, because they might be in this high risk zone that will potentially be bringing you know, the problem in. And then we have to look at also locations of the previous cases around the coffee shop. And of course, merging that real time, we call it the parameter, like the location parameters from the users with the big data that we gather from the public sources. Then we come up with a prediction of, okay, so this is red or this is orange in this area. And if you go, you know, 10 miles away from that area, you will be in orange zone. So something like that. And every calculation, every display, and even the input or yeah, input from the users are related to the location basis. Now, extrapolating that with other use cases, like you can pretty much think about locations everywhere around us. Like if we wanted to find out where things are at, especially in the energy and environmental space where we're working on right now, knowing where to say dump out pile of waste after you clean up an area, knowing how big your area needs to be excavated and knowing where to park your cars, where to bring your field teams in, how to access a certain site when you're out in the middle of nowhere, there's no road whatsoever, right? All these are locational information that are invaluable to the execution of whatever job they're doing. So what we're doing now is that we're making it super, well, up to now, it has been almost like a privilege to professionals, GIS professionals, geospatial information system professionals, like the mapping professionals, to exclusively access these type of information because they know how to run those software and which can be quite complicated and they know where to pull data from and so on. So they become like the privileged user holding those kind of information, which could be a very inefficient way of running projects or operations at scale. You have to, you may be blocked by them. You have to, you know, spend extra cycles to communicate with them when you just need a simple answer of where should I park my truck? And it shouldn't be kind of waiting for two days for, you know, coming up with fancy map and the drawings on the map to tell you that. So we created a platform where it's super simple for people just to understand the question of where things are at. Combining that with what they're doing currently, which is like project-related work, operational stuff, like the typical money, financial stuff, like budget, cost, and then, you know, the progress, even the chatting, like between people, they're communicating. 
say if I wanted to text you a message saying, hey, Jose, can you park at lot number three, right? Like in my message, I wanted to instruct you to park your car at lot number three. You have to figure out what, what do I mean by lot number three and look for signs and stuff like that. What if I can tell you actually you can see it right away on the map, relevant, like lot number three, relevant to where you are at right now. And you can go there right away after seeing my message. That is just a very simplistic way of explaining the power of location. And we're kind of bringing all those, the best of GIS, the mapping with the best of project management into what we're doing now, the metadata.com. So companies that are in the energy space, what is, you know, give me some ideas of like some of the use cases that they're coming up with for the technology. Yeah, starting from DNC drilling and construction, a lot of these users are just surveying the site that, hey, how can I build the next pad or how can I build the next 10 wells within the parameter of this location? Because I know there are so, certain, when I cross certain boundaries, it will be a private land or I might be going to too close to the water or I might be kind of having to look at the hills and the escalation of you know the location and so on. So all these factors, the real life factors that impacts how they drill, where they drill, and you know even the facility around them, the pads, their access roads, it's gonna be impacted by all these locational mapping stuff. So don't get me wrong, like the GIS professionals, they're still definitely needed in terms of drafting the final engineering ready blueprint and construction ready schematics. But the planning process, the planning process itself is a very collaborative process where it involves a lot of non-technical users. So project managers, you know, even all the way to the VP of ops, for example, they, they don't do day-to-day software or GIS yeah. work. Yeah, they will have you. a say on, you know, all these things, right? So they, when you are collaborating, then you need a simple way for them to make, like almost like a whiteboard drawing tool for them to make marking on a map and be able to see it real time even if they are not in the same room. So that's just one example. And then the other one is, you know, towards the end of oil well life cycle, for example, in the cleanup stage where environmental is important. Yeah, definitely you want to see, you know, whether water body is close by, you want to plan out your or your waste dump or your excavation, whether you're hitting a private land or something like that. So all these are, again, very locational-based use cases. So there are certain, you know, each company probably are managing tens, hundreds, or even thousands of these use cases at a time, like over a year. Imagine them having to go through spreadsheets to yeah. you know, try to understand the, the whole context, right? It's yeah. super hard for them. Sean, what, what other industries or what other verticals inside of energy have you guys been having, you know, interactions with or has have expressed interest in utilizing Matador's technology? Yeah, besides oil and gas, I think one interesting use case is recently we partnered with an engineering firm, but they're looking at Matador with energy efficiency planning, right? With a lot of buildings, they have different sort of, they need to plug in different algorithms to be able to calculate, you know, the energy output, energy input and efficiency calculation for different buildings, right? To kind of streamline that part, well, not streamline the sense of actually workflow, but actually visualizing that portion a lot more effectively between different stakeholders. Also, utilities is something that we were looking at, you know, utilities, hydro, any of that source. And it's a bit different in terms of use case. But yeah, that's kind of where we see potentially going into, you know, becoming more industry agnostic moving forward. So. Just looking at it from a user's perspective, if I was a company and I was interested in using Matador's technology, one thing 
that has been on the forefront of everybody's mind recently is how do I know that the data that we put into you know, the database or into the program or the software, how is that secure? Like, what do you guys do to secure that data and set up redundancies so that if something happens, like how is it structured, the network, so that this way I know there's going to be you know ample amount of uptime. I'm not going to have to worry about downtime or somebody breaching in and, and you know, obviously compromising my data. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's a really important question for every startup or scale up and needs to go through. For us, we kind of had to find a balance between spending too much on data security and, uh, and you know, having the monitoring system and measures in place versus keeping ourselves lean and, and sustainable <laughs> for the first few months or even a couple of years of uh, operations. Yeah, the challenge has been finding the balance. And there are certain roles that cannot be broken, like certain, you know, encryption definitely needs to be there. You can't store your password on encrypted thing, basic things like that, and you have to be uh, under SSL. So those are luckily pretty low cost implementation. And then when we got getting into more talking to say larger users, larger customers, they normally have a, a part of their procurement process as the IT review and, and approval, which they will send, send us a, a long list of questionnaires where we have to answer. We, yeah, we won't be able to answer every single questions with the, what desire answer, but we have to make sure, like for us, we have to make sure that we we have, we cover the impo- most important points. And then it's almost like an RFP from their end where they expect not a hundred percent score on it. But if we can cover the, the main part, then we're good. So there are certain things that we have to kind of reactively handle based on the needs of the user customers. But the basic ones are, if you're running on a cloud like Azure or Amazon AWS, those things are pretty given already. Like once you're in there, they will recommend you a certain way of handling your accounts, even the administrator accounts with your servers. They will be recommending you setting up the redundancies, disaster recovery, the backups, and all these things are, if you don't, don't touch them, they actually are automatically set up for you. And then you have to further configure it if you want. So those basic things will probably get, you know, most of the startup past their first or even second year of their operation. And when they hit, you know, a larger customer with uh, more specific requirements, then we can start looking into more compliance, like pen testing, vulnerability testing, and other SOC 2 type of uh, compliance as well, which is can be quite costly for startups. I guess we can think about it as a, as a marketing tool too. So if we, if we were to do that compliance test and get a certification, then we can pretty much bring that up in as part of our sales pitch, right? It's like to instill extra confidence to especially the larger customers. So it's a fine balance, I would say, between, you know, four, four startup companies. Yeah, that makes sense. Out of all of the cloud services that you guys have been exposed to, whether it's AWS or Azure, or Google Cloud, which has been the one that you feel like has probably been the most easiest to use, easiest to implement out of all of the service providers so far, you know, for a company that's scaling up, that's like, this has probably been the one that, that you would probably say, after I look at them all, this is the one that I'd probably recommend for anybody going down this road of scaling up their business and needing to add on more, more data or, or machines and things of that nature. We started off with Amazon. I didn't remember when or why when we made that decision, but it was like years ago. And then we just inherited the 
the operation on Amazon and grow with them. And then I think Amazon, for us, we were able to get into quite a bit of credits from them because uh, we joined a few, like we joined some accelerator and then they will, they will give you like a certain amount of credits that can pretty much last you for a couple of years. So we almost like we didn't have to pay much, if not, if anything for using AWS. So maybe that's the reason why we're sticking with that. And then when we were working on some projects, some, some special projects, we had to deploy a on-premise copy of our source code into their private cloud. And most major Fortune 500 company, many of them are using Azure with the Microsoft authentication and all these integration. And then we had the opportunity to actually deploy and run on Azure in addition to AWS. And actually the experience wasn't too bad either. I mean, the cloud servers nowadays are making it so simple that you, it's almost like, yeah, it's plug and play kind of things. Put your source code in there and it magically work. And then you, you're going into the scaling order, the tuning mode, right? So I would say between the two, I don't know, like they have their strengths and weaknesses. I guess the interface is into very, both are very intuitive. It's just that for us, we have some credit <laughs> with uh, AWS. So <laughs> we kind of wanted to stick with them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that makes exactly. the most sense, right? I mean, you've got credits with them. You got, might as well use them instead of you know spending money on something else that you've already got paid for, right? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of going back to like being a startup, right? Or scale up is that you always have to stay lean. So that's like the primary importance is, you know, whichever can. Well, not to say AWS is a great service, but also I think having credits, you know, having those, you know, been through programs, accelerator, those in-kind partners definitely provided us you know, a lot of headway in terms of actually using AWS that, you know, we don't have to stress about, okay, this is going to be, you know, another operating cost, right? Because that's kind of being covered in a sense. So having gone through an accelerator program, what are some things that companies that are applying to these programs need to really consider before either accepting to become part of an accelerator program or what should they prepare themselves after finishing the program itself? Yeah, we're actually going through one right now, but I've done accelerators in the past and Vincent's gone through a couple of programs as well. And I think the biggest takeaway to any startups or any, you know, scale ups, even going to accelerators that you have to be really open minded. It's easier said than done. The problem with, you know, being an entrepreneur is that once you've seen some sort of success traction, you're very wired in a certain way, right? Like this is how I'm running my business this is a type of customer I'm reaching out type of customer persona what kind of channels I'm reaching out to them, right? But I think, you know, being part of an entrepreneur is the challenge is finding, you know, what you don't know that you don't know, right? Like we all know stuff that we don't know. Like I don't know how to code, you know, there's stuff that Vincent knows he doesn't know, but it's always that 50%, that dark side of the moon, as I call it, right? So I think always have an open mind and be really receptive to, you know, mentors, advice, criticism, and really, I think the biggest takeaway after, you know, doing everything is really understand, you know, understand your business in a sense that what gets you the most amount of interactions with your, you know, ideal customer, right? Like, how do you get your customer to use your product, keep coming back to your product, focus on that interaction and don't care about anything else. I think everything else is a distraction, right? Like, you know, you can talk a lot about like, you know, we have partnership with this, partnership with that, like everything is great. But when it comes down to it is, you know, you just have to really stay focused, right? And I think some accelerators are good because they 
train you in a certain way that makes you stay focused. But at the other side of the coin, some accelerators just throw a lot on your plate, right? Like they can introduce you partners. There's like, you know, all these corporate partnerships, which is good. You know, if you're trying to connect with corporates to, you know, do pilots, right? I think that's always like really good if you're in B2B. But at the same time, you really want to hone in and focus on like that one metric that really drives the success for your startup or scale up and be able to, you know, contribute everything towards that, right? If it doesn't contribute towards that. And yeah, I think, you know, going through some programs, I think it's been pretty transformative from a mindset. And I think mindset goes a long way because, you know, when in the beginning you can look at, there's so many lectures on startups on YouTube, there's like tons, right? Not to mention there's like a lot of fake gurus online. <laughs> you know, you've probably seen a lot of those, right? Like those Amazon guys that are like saying, you know, they, you know, going through this foolproof system, four steps, you can like, you know, like do, you know, FBA and all that stuff. And then, yeah, but the idea was that, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you really have to, you know, really essentially take away all the distraction and noise and really just focus on that one metric, right? And then I think the problem with look at all these online materials I mentioned earlier is that it's very easy to pick up the information, but you won't really know how to apply it, you know, from a mindset mentality wise until like you're actually at that point. So yeah, like when I first started, you know, going to my entrepreneurial leap, taking that leap. I saw so many webinar sessions talking about, oh, staying focused, like, you know, persisting and everyone can, you know, regurgitate that, right? That's almost like an, you know, entrepreneurial anthem. Like, you know, you got to be persistent. You got to be passionate about what you're building. But, you know, you're only tested in that regards when, you know, when part of my language, but when shit gets rough, right? Like that's actually when you're tested. It's like a litmus test for that. So. Yeah, I think a lot of that sort of what you were talking about, I mean, that's really, you know, it's very surface level entrepreneurial, you know, business stuff, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, and, and, and we've all done it, right? We've read books that give you a warm and fuzzy and they have all these great stories and they tell you how people have gone on to create, you know, or go on to like accomplish great things. But what we're really looking for later on is once you get past that, you're looking for the gears, the bolts, the nuts, like how is this put together? How does it work? How do I reverse engineer it? How do I make it myself? How do I make it my own, right? Once you get past that surface level, you know all those basic things, right? And it's good to come back and practice basics. Any professional athlete does everything, like goes and practice the basic building blocks of what they do at repetition, like at you know to the point where they can do it in their sleep. That's stuff they're not worried about yet they still practice it. What they really start to fine tune are those super critical niche skills that, you know, somebody with a very high level of, of understanding is teaching and coaching and providing, or they're creating, right? They're creating these techniques because they are creating something that hasn't been there before. Because they've already got that those basics down. So once you got that stuff down, now you're really focused on like what is really going to take the business to the next chapter and how do we get there? What processes do we need? You know, how do what products, how do we fix our products to where people really want them? Or how do we listen to the customer and understand like what do we need to do to modify the product to the customer's requirements? And somebody explained it to me, a business owner explained it to me really well. He said, look. You know, we would love to make everything for everyone, but we can't. We need to figure out what customers want and how many of them are going to buy what they're asking for and understand that we can't 
make it, it's not like Burger King. We can't do it, you know, their way all the time. There's going to be times where we have to say no because commercially it's not viable. It's a one and done deal. And now, if we can take what they're asking for and apply that across the board or to more people or build a customer base off of it, then yes, we should explore that route. We should go down that road. But yeah, I think it's really interesting when you start to you know get a bunch of opinions and people are telling you, you should do this, you should do that. I mean, there's a thousand ways to become successful and there's a thousand and one to become unsuccessful, unfortunately. And you know, yeah. just you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's a chance you're willing to take, but you have to know those basics at, a, at, at least a minimum, right? And so going into the nuts and bolts of like, how do I really get this company to zero to 100? you know, or to 50 or whatever I need to do, you're going to have to go past that surface level stuff, right? So let me ask you guys another yeah. question. Obviously, co-founders, how well do you feel like you know each other? I mean, on a scale from one to 10, Sean, how well do you think you know Vincent? I would say if I say 10, it's kind of creepy, but I would say like eight <laughs> or nine. I know Vincent. Yeah, I got funny stories. So I think, yeah, I know Vincent pretty well because I think a lot of times we kind of read each other's minds, but you know, usually if he asks me a question about, you know, for example, a certain deliverables a certain way, I can tell he's not happy with it, right? If he, <laughs> like, if he, for example, if I, if I hand him over, hand him over a sales deck and then if he says it's great, like it looks like, like sick or like, you know, really, like really straight up, like this is nice, right? Like I can tell he likes it. But if he says, he asked me back, he's like, what do you think about this? Then I know he doesn't like it, right? Like, like I can, <laughs> that's, that's basically, it's a, yeah, a lot of times it's funny. Like, yeah. And then, yeah, I think Vince knows me pretty well too. Cause I'm a guy that likes to, you know, I like to brag is actually a bad word, but I like to be, I like to publicize a lot of our success in a way that, you know, sometimes it may come off as too brash. Like that would be like the more appropriate saying, but yeah, I think we overall, I think we know each other pretty well. We got some like funny stories as well. So Vincent, what, no, what would I you think say? we complement each other. Yeah, I think Sean and I complement each other very well. Like I'm more more of a subtle and introvert. So I, I actually don't enjoy socializing or being in a networking event, events and things like that. But Sean is the complete opposite of me. And so, yeah, it's funny that Sean was bringing that up. Yeah, I was hoping... And same thing, like when I was doing certain things, I was kind of more on the conservative side in most cases. Like I would be like trying to question whether a certain decision or a certain way of, you know, say bragging, whatever, right? Does it work or not? And then Sean is the person who likes to prove me wrong. <laughs> and, and he often does. <laughs> and actually, I gained a lot of respect from, from him proving me wrong time and over and over again. Like he would not be arguing with me, but actually doing that to show it's actually working. And I really appreciate that, right? Like, in nothing speaks louder than the actual outcome and the results. So no, no need for argument. I think that's the chemistry that he and I have is that we never had to argue a lot of things. It's just, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes, right? Like, when we are in the disagreement, we'll give us some time and see who is right or who is wrong. And we respect each other's decision afterwards. So, and I think that's the most important thing is the mutual respect between the founders and understanding that we strength and weaknesses, not just the other side, but ourselves as well. Yeah, the human element, right? I mean, yeah, there's a human. You guys are not just business partners. You're, you're still two very individual human beings, right? That brings me to a good question. So you, you sort of hit on it a little bit, and I'd like to expand on that. When you guys come to a point where it's like there's not necessarily disagreement, but you're, you're just maybe sort of at gridlock with like, we don't know if we want to do this, do this. How do you guys 
and not necessarily disagree with each other, but you're just sort of at a fork in a road where you're like trying to figure out, should we go left? Should we go right? What process do you guys go through to work through that? What critical thinking processes do y'all go through to figure out like, you know what, Sean, you know what, Vincent, let's go left or let's go right. Like, how do you guys work through those problems? Because I'm sure that there's times where you come to forks in a road together and you're not necessarily disagreeing, but you don't know how to move forward. How do you figure that out collectively? I think usually when we, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Vince, but I actually have a pretty easygoing personality. I don't, I'm not very, I'm like, most times I'm not really that opinionated. Like a lot of times if I have the suggestions or have, you know, something in mind, even if Vincent doesn't think it's a good idea or priority at the moment, I would actually think and ask myself, you know, is this actually a priority? Is this actually something important? Okay. And most times Vincent's right, you know, like we, we don't really need to do this. Like it seems extra, like this is necessary, right? So usually I just take in what Vincent says. If Vincent, you know, refutes it or, you know, Vincent thinks like, but Vincent would always make a suggestion saying that, hey, like, do we really need to like do this at this time? Is it necessary? And I think that's actually a good mentality to have. So I think that's why we're not, we don't really get into a lot of arguments. And usually if, you know, if in the same situation when Vincent asked me something back or like if he refutes it, and then I was very, you know, very firm in the way that, you know, I believe it should be done this way, then like maybe like that's usually the time when I think it warns that we should maybe consider something else. But usually I just tend to suggest something, but then, you know, I'm not like I need to do it this way. Right. Because I think, you know, overall, like as a macro, it should be more about, you know, as a company, right. Whether or not this is necessary for your company's growth. Like you can't just a lot of times it's not really thinking from your perspective, but thinking like as a team. Right. And sometimes like not like even if you really believe in something, but then like, you know, a couple of people don't agree with you, but then you have to always outweigh like the pros and cons, right? Like, do I really need to convince my teammates that this is a good idea and they don't like doing it? And like it impedes like everyone's morale when like going like going down this route, right? So, you know, not saying like we have it perfect. I mean, there's always going to be times where there's friction. There's going to be times when there's going to be like, you know, debates, arguments, you name it, right? But I think as long as you can place yourself, you know, before, I mean, if you can place your company's interests ahead of yourself, then I think you can just reduce a lot of conflicts, right? Because you want to grow collectively together. It's not really about what you want. It's like we, right? Like we as a team, we as an organization. And I think, you know, it took me a while to realize that, to be honest, because I think just saying we you know, verbally as, you know, internalizing the weed statement is, I think it's different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Vincent, you want to add to that? Yeah, I would add to that is, uh, yeah, for sure. And I totally agree with Sean. And and very importantly, when communicating with the rest of the team, we don't want to argue or, or having to go through a discussion on whether to do certain things or not. One of our core value, actually, from a company is the empowerment. So everyone is fully equipped to make their own decision. And so it becomes Sean and my job to actually build a very solid foundation of what we are doing, why we're doing certain things. So some people call it a vision and mission statement. And then I think we are lucky enough to know early on, this is the thing that we would like to do. And these are the things that we would not want to do and be able to communicate that. We're still learning to effectively communicate that and reminding our team those values and the vision statements. Since we already have that foundation in place, people can just ask, hey, does it fit well with the existing framework or foundation? We're using this metric and we set certain goals for this metric. 
is your decision going to impact, right? And if both of your decisions are, which ones are impacting more, like, and then it just stripped down a lot of unnecessary questioning or, or debates over it, if there's a common goal and objective in mind. And so we kind of make it more efficient. And when we're discussing them, we're discussing the topics that are filtered, like certain people, like including ourselves, we will hit some areas where we have no idea where the it's going to impact or actually making it worse, then, well, I mean, in those cases, that's where the mentors and advisors comes in, right? So going through the accelerator, right, we can actually be open to them and say, hey, this is a challenge. You know, well, what would you say? What do you think? And finally, it's a cliche to say, you know, use data to, to back up your decision. So look at, yeah, just look at it more on an objective side than being opinionated. Usually it gets a long way and easier compromise, if you will. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I see that. Sean, this question is for you. Where you're at today as a company, what's the next chapter? What's the next three, five, 10 years look like, do you believe, for, for Matador? Well, hopefully, you know, in the next, so I'll kind of break it up. I think in three years, we really want to be able to tack into other industry, like have benchmark clients. Like, you know, I think we're pretty close with, you know, AEC, like engineering, you know, civil planning. We won't be going to construction because I feel construction is more vertical than horizontal. Like I think our platform is more breadth and depth. It's more about managing multiple locations at the same time rather than going a miles deep into one location. So in three years, going to you know more engineering, civil planning application. In five years, we really want to you know start building out you know APIs. You know with our platform, we want to turn it into like a plugin where. We can essentially be, you know, an augment or another layer on top of, you know, any sort of other geospatial or map-based platform, right? So be able to offer us as another tools for people to play with. So really become the go-to for any sort of location-based collaboration, right? Augmentation of data through using our platform. But then at that point, it will be like an API plugin. In 10 years, if I have a crystal ball and, you know, hopefully I can see that far ahead, hopefully we can exit or, you know, IPO. But yeah, I think, you know, I think the value that we really wanted to bring as a company is, you know, helping people better visualize and, you know, the way they work in the field to become more sustainable, reduce the amount of unnecessary site visit. And I think, you know, maybe an IPO or getting exit is just another stepping stone to get there. But I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs should look at, you know, what value they're actually giving back to their customer rather than looking at, you know, I need to grow a company to this size. I need to become rich. I need to make money. And I always tell my friends, right, if you want to make money, then don't, don't start a company. You're going to have a horrible time if you're just <laughs> in it to like make money, right? Yeah, because you got to you gotta get like, you know, it's very cliche to say you got to get kicked around. You got to like take, you got to eat rejections like breakfast, right? Like you got to, you know, I guess I had a bit of a training, a bit of a training or like, you know, I, I got my first dose of, you know, vaccine when I was at, you know, sales, right? So I went through that whole process of, you know, knocking on people's door, doing door to door, taking objections, rejections, and be able to become really fast on my feet. And yeah, it's just all that experience. And you soon to realize that, you know, when you go from sales to doing a startup, it's completely different mindset. And the way you're looking at things should be a bit different. You're not in it for the money. You know, ironically, that's why a lot of people go into businesses is they want to, you know, be their own boss, they want to have flexible work schedule. I can tell you that if you do your startup, it's not a flexible work schedule, unless you like playing Tetris with your calendar. So, yeah, it's not a, 
Yeah, if we say, yeah, a lot of my friends would be like, oh, like, you know, you, you don't you don't really have meetings. You, you know, you plan your own meetings. You're, you know, you, like, you know, it's, it's your own company. And I said, well, like, you know, that's that's really not the case. Right. Like, you know, a lot of times, especially in this society, like a lot of times when you're leading or building a team, you have to be in the beginning, like more busy, if not like, you know, at least busier than most of your team. Right. Like you got to lead by example. You got to show them that, you know time management, life, work-life balance, like everything is constantly balancing each other out, right? I think that's like the mastery of entrepreneurship is you have to balance everything, right? You have to balance health, your personal, your personal relationship. You know, you don't want to burn out from working too much. You have to like, you know, juggle all these kind of things in perfect harmony. So yeah, that's kind of my takeaway for the last couple of years and then, you know, potentially looking forward down the road. Right. So, yeah. You know, they say we're everybody like you're your own worst critic. Right. I think that even goes even further. If you become your own boss, like you're probably, you're probably the worst person you've ever worked for because you're so hard on yourself. Right. Like you, you don't take any excuse. You don't give yourself any excuses. Whereas, you know, if you worked for a company, you know, a supervisor might, might give you some leeway and be like, don't be so hard on yourself where you're like constantly beating yourself up probably and being tough on yourself. Vincent, this last question is for you. Why the name Matador? <laughs> it's actually a better better question for Sean, but I can uh, try to answer it. Because Sean came up with the name and we want it to be more more earthly tone, more you know solid and, and you know charging to make a transformation to the convention industry conventional industries like energy and construction and engineering. We were kind of using the Matador symbol as well because of the location like the Stampede tends to happen in the area that we're doing business. And, you know, that works really well and resonating with, you know, hopefully our, our prospering users. So that's that's how we came across the name. And yeah, I think the logo as well is come from Sean. I really like that combination. Yeah. yeah give us your reason, Sean. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a matador. The actual logo should be like the bullfighter, but the reason why we use the bull is because we feel like, you know, we essentially matador like the whole company, right? Like the whole entity is the bullfighter. We're tackling, we're grabbing the bull by the horns and the bull represents a very conventional industry, right? Like oil and gas, earthworks, like everything that's very earth related. So that's kind of where we thought, you know, matador would be a good fit and the reason why i spelled it with an i is because you know there's a lot of matador out there right so and we just thought that you know we and vincent wanted a dot-com domain as well so that's why we <laughs> decided to kind of start with me like matador yeah we we were thinking about like map like mapador or like in the beginning but then we decided that matador still has like a better you know tone to it so yeah I think of when I see the bull, I always think of like the stock market. You have the bulls and the bears and the bulls are like the very bullish people. They think everything's going to go super high. And then the bear people are like, no way. Everything's going to go low. So I like being bullish on Matador. I like that. That's a, that's a really cool logo you guys have there and, and really interesting. But before we leave, and either of you can answer this question, Sean, you might, since you're on the BD side, it's probably a good one for you. How do people get in touch with you? How do they find the company? How can they you know, get in contact with you guys if they want to yeah. learn more? Yeah, for sure. So you can hit up me or Vincent. So our emails is minus S-E-A-N at matador, M-A-T-I-D-O-R.com. And Vincent is V-I-N-C-E-N-T at matador.com. Or you can check out our website as well as follow our socials as well. So 
yeah, our Twitter is just matador underscore com, like dot com, except dot is like the underscore. And then, yeah, catch us on LinkedIn as well, for sure. Thank excellent. You. Excellent. Guys, I appreciate you guys coming on, spending some time with me, telling me a little bit about yourselves, about the company, sharing personal stories and insights. I'm super excited to see you guys continue to grow, continue to prosper, you know, do well and keep crushing it. Any last thoughts or questions before we leave? No, really appreciate it, Jose. This is a great conversation. So we'd love to do that sometime later. Yeah, we definitely probably need to catch up in in maybe a year or so and see where you guys have progressed because I'm sure it's going to, you guys are going to, I'm bullish on Matador. So I think you guys are going to keep moving up. Obviously just winning an (laughs) award in Vancouver recently for Innovation Award by, who? before we leave, let's talk about that for a second. So the Innovation Award, who was that awarded by? That was awarded by a small business BC. And then, yeah, recently we were also, you know, a finalist at South by Southwest, which usually every year happens in Texas, but this year is virtual. So, well, congratulations, guys. You guys keep up the fire and we're going to catch up again on the next one. Cool. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Jose. Thank you so much, Jose. Yeah. Take care. Cheers. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for July 2021. This month we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. The first one being the Doug, Permian, and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events. The first being a Cognite webinar titled, From Buzzwords to Boardrooms, What Energy Leaders Really Think About the Transition Towards True Sustainability. And that's on July 8th from 11.30 to 12.30. And lastly, we have the US Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.